Okay, the title of this session, they always give me titles for my session. They never let me choose my own. And it was Opportunities for Domestic Medical Missions. All right, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just get that over with and then tell you what I really want to talk about today. So the first thing I want to I, I just want to get right into it. Five reasons why you should be engaged missionally in the United States. Number one is, if you kind of look at the map in the background there, what's that a map of? God's domain. You know, it's a, it's a map of the whole world. This is the Global Missions Health Conference, right? And so we have a tendency to think that global means international. We're the only people in the world that think that. God does not think that way. He doesn't live in America and not somewhere else and is launching out to go, you know. So, so God doesn't think about domestic missions and international missions God, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and all therein. He is the Lord of Afghanistan. He's the Lord of Cleveland. And, um, and so we are part, America is part of God's global mission. And we are to be committed to that kind of thing. So here's the other, Acts 1-8. How many of y'all know Acts 1-8? Like you came to the Global Missions Health Conference. How many of you, come on, tell me if you know Acts 1-8, right? You will receive... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my to Jerusalem. Okay, so y'all did exactly what I've done for, you know, most of my 41 years as as a believer. And that is Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. But the real key word in there is the word and. It's not or and it's not then. It's not just a strategy, it's Jerusalem, and then you're going to go here, and then you're going to go there. It's and. And so God's heart is always for where we are and the ends of the earth. And we should have that passion burning in us uh, for both places. God has placed you here so that. I love this passage. This is uh, uh, Paul's sermon on um, Mars Hill in Athens. To these brilliant guys, it's, the, it's, the, it's, his, it's his gospel sermon where he never mentions God, right? Where he never mentions Jesus by name. And so, um, and, and, but, but in that he says, he says, from one man, God made all men, and he determined the times and the places where each one should live so that, so in other words, you live, predetermine where you live with a purpose in God's mind and heart. And, it's, and so the end of that sentence is, so that men might seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, for he's not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So God has planted you. You could have been born anywhere, anytime, to any place, and God in his wisdom and sovereignty planted you in America right here so that people would seek him and find him. Okay? Because he's already there. So... There's a huge need in America. We don't think of America as a, as a needy place. And to be honest with you, most of the people that attend this conference and every other conference that I ever go to are people who, like me, were raised in privileged homes. We got an opportunity to go to nice schools. We got an opportunity to get in good colleges. We're going to be doctors and nurses and, uh, and PAs and such. But in America, there is a gigantic need, both medically and spiritually. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. 
And then finally, uh, there is no better preparation for foreign missions than to work in a cross-cultural setting uh, in a medically underserved area where you have difficult patients. It will prepare you better for the, for the foreign mission field than almost anything else that you do. And so I, th- I think it's great to go and do short-term uh, missions and sort of dip your toe in and sort of get acclimated and see if this is really where God's called me, you know, to go over to, you know, a tough place or something like that. But listen, living day in and day out in a cross-cultural setting and serving the kind of patients that we serve that are involved in domestic medical missions is fantastic preparation. Go ask David Stevens from CMDA or Howard Searle from the Emanuel Hospital uh, uh, System, or almost any of the other foreign mission organizations, the the guys from MedSyn, and they'll tell you that the best missionaries that they have on the field are missionaries that started by serving in a cross-cultural setting here in the U.S. in a medically underserved area. So it's called domestic opportunities, okay, domestic mission opportunities, and so... Uh, the first thing I want to tell you is a big, giant disappointment for all of you who are not students, and that is there are no domestic medical mission opportunities, short-term opportunities in the United States. If you're medical and you're wanting to do a two-week thing in Appalachia or Southern California or Idaho or something like that, there are just no opportunities for that. And the reason why is because of insurance and licensing. And so uh, that just doesn't, it just almost doesn't exist. There are some programs and there's some things that people put on. And to be honest with you, I don't recommend any of them. And, beca- and it's because, honestly, they're not helping the people they're serving and they're not helping us change the broken health care system in the United States. So just forget that. Don't do it, okay? I'm talking about these big, giant one-day clinics. Am I going to get in trouble for that? <laughs> So these big giant one-day clinics where they have 2,000 people come and all the you know buckets of teeth get carried off from all the people that get extractions and it really does help the people that need those extractions and the people that need glasses and get them that's really great but in terms of like medical health care it doesn't help someone to screen them and tell them hey I think you may have you know chronic hypertension um, you need to get that managed we're gone that's just not helpful. Uh, and so please don't do something like weigh your motives and think about there's this great book called When Helping Hurts. You all heard about it? Yeah, Brian Fickard, I think he spoke or was supposed to speak here last year. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great concept that we really need to be we need to think about how to not just engage people of need, but how to do it responsibly. OK, but there are there are opportunities for students. So if you're a student, go, yay. OK. Yeah, so um, so these are so, uh, so I, I'm the executive director for an organization called Christian Community Health Fellowship, and uh, Christian Community Health Fellowship is a nationwide community of Christian health professionals who are committed to living out the gospel through healthcare among the poor, and uh, and. About half of the people in CCHF, there's maybe 5,000 people roughly in CCHF, and about half of them work in Christian health centers. And there's about, there's 300 or so, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes too, but there's 300 or so Christian health centers around the country. And if I were to put an email blast out and, and say, hey, do you guys have a summer program for students, 
I would get 300 positive responses back saying, absolutely, we do have a summer program for students. Send them our way. But if I were to ask them, what is your summer program? They're like, oh, they can come and volunteer with us. So I really think if you're going to do a summer program as a student, you need to do it with a sense of purpose and direction for equipping you for the permanent call that God has for you, right? And so I'm not recommending necessarily all of those. Like that may be the best you can do, and that's great, and you should. Some of these are really wonderful clinics, and volunteer at them. There's a bunch of them. How many people are from – how many people here are not – are students? Raise your hand. Now – Drop your hands if you're from Michigan or go to school in Michigan. So that's about half of you, all right? So like, like in Michigan, there's a, there's a bunch of really good places where you can volunteer and, and, and do things around the year, or, you know, and that kind of thing. But in terms of actual programs where you get some real training and where they're going to equip you for this type of missional work long term, these are the ones that I think – or should be sort of at the top of your list. And, and because there's so few around the country, they're very competitive to get in. Okay, so I'll, I'll run through them really quick uh, and just let you know that you can go to the CCHF website, and there's a, sep- there's a whole page just for summer uh, internship programs that you can check out uh, when you get back home next week. And it'll be updated some next week as well. So... Um, one of the best programs is one at uh, Lawndale Christian Health Center in Chicago. It's on the west side of Chicago. It's an inner-city clinic. It's located in a really unique community. North Lawndale is predominantly African-American, and South Lawndale is predominantly Hispanic. And so uh, if you speak Spanish or want to really bone up on your Spanish, like that's a great place to go. Um, you, it's, it's an immersion program. All of these pr- are pretty much immersion programs, so you will actually live with one of the providers who lives in the community. Uh, it's a four-week program. Um, there's, it's a really interesting cohort. They take all kinds of students intentionally. So there'll be two high school graduates, and then there'll be, you know, maybe two pre-med students, and then maybe a couple of nursing students, and then there'll be like a third, two third-year residents that'll be there for a month, uh, family medicine residents. So they, they take the whole scale, and they try to mix it up cross-culturally and and uh, uh, and in terms of discipline and and that kind of thing as well. And so um, it's you, you do a lot of work in the community. You get a little bit of clinic time uh, with the providers, but not much. And uh, but it's a really really fine program. It's a very good program. Uh, Christ Community Health Services of Augusta is in their third year of offering, a, um, again, a, a pretty robust uh, summer internship program. It's a six-week program, and uh, you spend four weeks working with the guys in Augusta, doing, again, getting to un- they do a lot to help you understand the issues, cross-cultural issues and poverty issues and the brokenness of the health care system and how Christians can uh, address those kinds of things. You do a lot of work in the community. The last two weeks is a uh, uh, an international missions trip with MCO, Medical Campus Outreach. I think they usually go to Haiti or something like that, you know. It's somewhere, you know, close, but uh, – and so anyway, that's a good program. They, I think they usually only take four to six students for that. Uh, Christ Community Residency Program in Memphis um, – 
So this is very unique. I don't know any other uh, residency programs that offer internships for non-resident, you know, for for people that are not residents. And so Callie over here did this and uh, was uh, is a is a PA student now. So um, they take uh, usually. Um, after your senior year, kind of a, you know, in that gap between graduating uh, from undergrad and starting med school is, is, or PA school is when they, is when they take those. Um, that's a very competitive program to get in as well, but it's good. And I don't know, Rick, do they, Callie, do, do you get paid for that? That one you get paid for. Two dollars an hour. There you go. That's right. You get to live in the hood. It's it, that's a, it's a fan, it's a great program. That one probably has more clinic time um, than some of the others do. Uh, Butterfield Memorial Foundation is a is a uh, is a Christian foundation in Oklahoma City, and their program is only for Oklahoma students. Anybody from Oklahoma? All right. I'm not even going to talk about it because. All right, summer mission experiences. There's there's two of them that I think are really great here in the U.S. One of them is uh, Salome Family Health Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, they have a um, they have something that they've started called the Salome Institute for Faith, Health, and Culture. And uh, the CEO at Salome is a um, an internal medicine doc. Uh, with a master's in theology, and he loves teaching. He just loves getting into, he loves like screwing with your mind and, and, and making you think outside the box and looking at things from different ways. And, and it, it's a very challenging thing. They, um, that's a, a decent-sized cohort. There will be uh, 12 to 15 people in that. Uh, you, live in a, you live in community in a, uh, a pretty rough apartment complex that is mostly uh, where refugee resettlement people are um, are staying temporarily. And so you do a lot with refugees, with international refugees. Um, believe it or not, Nashville is one of those cities that is really big in, in uh, a lot of refugees. And so they, they do a lot with um, Muslim-speaking, uh, 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 refugees from Muslim countries and, uh, and in than East Asia. And then Esperanza in Philadelphia has probably the best-known summer program for students. It's called SMI, or Summer Medical Institute. And again, it's a, I want to say, it's the, the, they usually take somewhere 15 to 25 people, I think. And um, it's they do a lot with medical campus outreach, but you don't have to be a part of medical campus outreach to be a part of, of that. And uh, you live in, again, it's an emergence opportunity. You do a lot of door-to-door work um, doing diabetes checks, blood pressure checks, immunizations, um, and, you, you know, and obviously you're working with the Esperanza people. And that's a really wonderful program as well. So those are the, those are the summer programs that I'm aware of uh, and certainly would recommend for students um, here in the U.S., Okay, other opportunities for other people that are not students in domestic medical missions. Um, and, and again, thinking in terms, of if, if you're not thinking about this in terms of permanence, but you're thinking in terms of just sort of short term, hey, look, 
you can work at a Christian clinic. There's a bunch of Christian clinics out there, and they need really sold-out disciples that are willing to live sacrificially and willing to love people like Jesus loved people and to do something with excellence with their life. And so um, you can work at a Christian clinic. If you're a specialist, any specialist, any non-specialist, I mean not primary care providers here. One, okay. And you're going to start, a, I mean, you're going to take over a clinic, right? No, you're not going to take over. What are you, where are you from? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Where in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so, so in Harrisburg and Lancaster and Williamsport, they're Christian, and, and certainly in, in Pittsburgh, that's a little further away, but um, there are Christian clinics there that are desperate for specialty clinics. And a huge need is for specialists to come and offer a one-day-a-month clinic uh, to see some of their patients. I'm not sure what your specialty is, but um, I'm assuming it's not... Botox and stuff like that. Good. Great. All right. Good. Although I know a Christian clinic that offers a Botox clinic. It kind of worries me a little bit. But. Uh, so there's a need for that. There really is a need. Like The biggest need and, and the most effective thing that we can do is primary care uh, for these medically underserved communities around the world, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And so... Um, but, but it is very difficult. The three poorest cities in the United States are Memphis, New Orleans, and Detroit. The three poorest cities in the United States. And in Memphis, New Orleans, and Detroit, there's not a single orthopedist that's willing to see anyone on, that's willing to see a patient who has Medicaid or who is not insured at all in the three poorest cities in the United States. And I'm going to tell you, Memphis is the buckle of the Bible belt, and the churches are full of orthopedists who will not see a Medicaid patient because they think it's bad for business. So, you know, orthopedics is tough. Dermatology is very difficult to find dermatologists in some of these cities to see these kind of patients that we care for. So, um, I don't know, if your dad's a specialist, you know, like guilty men to doing something one day a month or something for some of these clinics. And then there's some good Christian clinics to volunteer at. So, um, The great news is that uh, surveys show that most people who profess Christ and say that their faith is important to them, and then they go into medical school, they do it out of a sense of call to mission. You know, most of you that are here, probably everybody that's here, has some sort of a sense of draw into mission. It's like, I'm not sure what it is yet. I'm still sort of exploring that. But this is I I know this is how Christ wants me to serve him. So this is a map of the United States, and it's, uh, these are all the medically underserved areas in the United States. These are not all of the medically underserved areas in the United States, but these are, if you, there's color on this map, it means that the entire county that's represented in that is, the whole county is medically underserved, okay? Uh, so in every major city in the United States, there are, like it doesn't look like there's any medically underserved areas in St. Louis, but St. Louis is a severely medically underserved city, it's just pockets. It's zip codes. They just wouldn't show up on this on this map. So a medically underserved area, um, how many of you all are familiar with that term, medically underserved area? Okay. 
And so you know that, um, for those of y'all that are not familiar with that, a medically underserved area is a federal designation of a geographic area that has four characteristics. It has too many poor people, too many old people, the infant mortality rate is really high, and there's not nearly enough physicians to go around. So there's a physician shortage, infant mortality rate, a high elderly and a high poverty population. Uh, another term that you'll hear is a HIPSA area or a health profession shortage area. And again, if there's color on this map, that's a bad thing. Can you believe that the United States of America, that this much of the United States of America has a severe health professional shortage? And so to, to get color, any color at all on this map, you have to have less than one doctor per 3,500 people. So no doctors, no, no primary care doctors can manage care for 3,500 people. The average doc that works in one of these areas can effectively manage care for somewhere between 900 and 1,200 people if they're like Superman, all right? And so if there's color on this map, it's really, really bad. And then they have scores. Uh, so HIPSA scores up to 25. That's, a, that's an extremely high shortage area in the United States. So here are the stats that go with that. According to George Washington University School of Public Health, 96 million people in America live in a medically underserved area. Okay? 96 million people. So that means that they're living in a community where the patients are competing with each other to get to the doctor. Um, I always tell medical students, you know, when you graduate and you you're start interviewing for jobs, ask the, the practice that you're interviewing with, you know, what's your advertising budget. And if they have one, don't go to work there. That's really not a high-need area, right? So um, that's, that's a, a little caricature. But, but, the, but the truth is that, frankly, most of the docs in America are siloed in communities where they want to live with their families, and so, for example, in Memphis, Tennessee, a few years ago, um, we had uh, Christ Community Health Services did a survey, and they found that in one in one suburb of Memphis, there were that had 30,000 people um, in in that suburb. The average household income was around $125,000 per year per household. 30,000 people. There were 105 docs that were working that were located in that area. And five miles away, on the other side of Memphis, was another community that was the same size, 30,000 people. The difference is the average household income was under $25,000 per year, per household. There were two, and neither one of them would take Medicaid. Okay, so we don't need all of the 105 to move to the other, but we need to spread them out some. But we've got 96 million people that live in communities where they can't, they just don't have access to good health care. 65 million of those people live in high-priority HIPSA areas. So a, a couple of years ago, before the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, there were 52 million people in the United States that were uninsured, chronically uninsured. 
And so the Affordable Care Act kicked in last year, hallelujah, and we've got, uh, and, and how many of those 52 million people got insurance? Anybody know? It was right at 12 million people nationwide. So we still have 39 million people in the United States that have no insurance at all, and most of the insurance that people got through the Affordable Care Act, that the people that didn't have it before, except for some of the states where they expanded Medicaid, most of those people are, remain chronically underinsured. They can't afford to go to the doctor because they've got a $5,000 deductible. And before, they didn't have to pay the $150 a month for the insurance that, they're, that they have now. And so they're actually worse off in some cases. So that's, there's a huge medical need in the United States. There's also a huge spiritual need in the United States. So this is from uh, George Barna, uh, from the Barna Institute, which does all these studies and surveys about uh, religion in America. And as of last year, this, these, are, these statistics are a year old. As of last year, less than 20% of Americans attend church. And, that the, and the Christian church is expected to shrink by 50% in your generation. This is maybe a, a really worse statistic than that, and that is that of those that were surveyed that attended church, half of them either said they were not Christians or they said they did not believe in the deity of Christ and the atoning death of Christ on the cross for them. They were there to get a good moral thing, or they were there because their wife drug them. And this is the scariest of all, is that less than 1% of Americans under the age of 50 have a, have a biblical worldview, and that's current. Um, Francis Schaeffer Institute, oop, I want to get that back there. Uh, sorry. There we go. This is, I'm going to read it to you. How's that? Hang on a second. All right. Is it going to do it? (laughs) All right. This is difficult for me to believe, but I trust this institute. Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development, that the United States now ranks third following China and India in the number of people who are not professing Christians. In other words, the U.S. is becoming an ever-increasing unreached people group. We're losing our country. We are in a mission field. The mission field I live in um, is Memphis, Tennessee. And this is, a, this is a picture from a CBS News report that was done several years ago about Memphis, Tennessee, which has the highest infant mortality rate in the United States. There are three zip codes in, the, in, in Memphis that, ha, that are the highest infant mortality rates in the whole country, and a child born in one of these three zip codes has less of a chance of having its first birthday than a child born in Botswana or El Salvador or Vietnam. And this is, this, is a, this is a thing that takes place twice a week, every week, in the county cemetery where they go and they bury these little babies. 
from our community. Now, Memphis is the home of St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. It's also the home of Regions one, Region 1. It used to be called the Med, which, is, which has got a really world-class neonatal department. I mean, the, these zip codes are in the shadows of these institutions that really uh, are phenomenal in terms of technology, in terms of resource. So the, the problem is that the resources are just not getting to the right people in the United States. And so, uh, praise God, we have Christians. And so uh, um, Christians are going to do something about it. So a friend of mine named Far Curlin, who is a uh, palliative care doc and uh, an academic, and he was with the University of Chicago for many years, did a study a few years ago. And in his study, I mean, he's at the University of Chicago, right? It's not like a bastion of Christianity, the University of Chicago. And so... Uh, he wanted to sort of do a study that highlighted how important Christians were in the safety net for health care. Okay? And so he did this huge survey. And in this survey, uh, to show that Christians were really important in safety net medicine, this is what the survey uh, uh, came back and showed. That Christians were actually slightly less likely than atheists to care for the poor. And so all of a sudden, the, the study, everything changed. Like his thesis was completely wrong, and everything changed. And the big question became, how can that possibly be? Why would that be? Why would it be that there's not a huge difference between people who profess Christ and care for the poor and people who say, I have no religion or I'm an atheist and care for the poor? Why, isn't there, uh, why, aren't, why aren't there more of us? And so they... they you know, again, went back and, and uh, did surveys, and what they found was that the number one answer was, well, there was pressure in med school to subspecialize. And if I subspecialize, it's probably not going to, you know, lend for me to be able to do primary care for the poor and to, and to care for the poor like we need, you know, like we need to do in, do in community health. But the, the problem with that answer is that pressure was the same for Christians or for atheists. All right, number two answer was. Well, we were concerned about student debt. You know, I don't know that I can live on $185,000 a year as a primary care doctor. You know? So, radio, you know, radiology's looked a lot better. And so, but the, the whole concern over student debt, again, that was the same issue for both the atheists and the Christians. So, let me ask you, what would be the one non-common denominator between Christians and atheists that might impact whether Christians or atheists serve the poor. Somebody said something? Hmm? Yeah, I wish that were the case. That unfortunately that wasn't. But that's a you know, let's let's hope for that. Okay. Not economic status. Parents a little, but but honestly, the parents' expectation is a, is the same for the atheist as for the Christian. But that's another big pressure. The church. The church was inadvertently discouraging Christians from caring, going into medicine to uh, to care for the poor. And the reason for that is because, and I, by the way, I, I was a pastor. I'm not a doctor. I was a pastor, and I I can point my finger back at myself for this, but. You know, we would look at some of you guys and we'd say, man, God has gifted you. 
You've got this awesome education. You've got this huge brain. You've got these amazing opportunities in front of you. And you should make, you should steward that. You should make the very most of that because God wants you to succeed. He, we need people of influence and, uh, and we need people, you know, God wants you to prosper. He wants you to be prosperous. And all of that, by the way, is true. Jesus does want you. To be, he does want you to be to prosper. He does want you to be influential. He does want you to be a success. The problem is that the church is adopting the world's definition of those things, and so success and influence and prosperity carry the world's materialistic definitions of those things. But success might be obedience. Like he does want us to be successful, but you know, if you if you take a look at the people in, the, in in throughout the scriptures that were sort of noted as people who were really really successful, like Noah has got to be up there. We're all here today because Noah was obedient, right? But Noah preached for a hundred years and didn't have a single convert. I bet his offerings were terrible. You know, he, he could put on a program; it just fell flat every time. But he did what God called him to do. And God marked him as a success because he was obedient. Maybe success is obedience. Maybe influence has more to do not with respect from our peers as us being salt and light and leaven for the kingdom of God into, in, into broken institutions like the institution of medicine. And prosperity, maybe that has to do with fruitfulness. So in the... Um, in the mid-1970s, this is what domestic medical missions looked like in the United States. Now, let me define domestic medical missions for just a second. I, when I think of domestic medical missions, I'm not thinking about Christians working in health care. I'm thinking of, uh, this is what we're thinking about. So in the, in the 60s and the early 70s especially, there was a radical, radical transformation of health care in the United States. Uh, technology began to burst forth, spe- uh, specialists began happening, Medicaid started in the mid-60s, and the general practitioner that saw everybody was sort of going his own way. And, medical, and, and, and medicine made a radical transformation. And it was during that time, or towards the end of that sort of decade after the uh, implementation of Medicaid, that a, that a group of Christians began to ask for the very first, maybe not for the very first time, but for the first time that, that we are aware of, they began to ask, is there a difference between being a Christian who is in medicine and practicing Christian medicine? Like, is it, is it enough that I do my job every day and then, you know, tithe and go to church and have a nice family and all those kinds of things and I don't swear and I have quiet times. Or if Jesus were a PA or if Jesus were whatever it is that I'm going to be and do with my life, would he be doing it different than the way it's being done now and the way that I'm being trained to do it? And so they began asking these questions, and there were really four pioneer areas, um, two of them rural, one of them in rural Mississippi, one of them in Appalachia, and then two of them in urban settings, one in Rochester and one in Washington, D.C., where these Christians began to say, you know, if Jesus were doing medicine, at the very least, I would think he would say, I'm not going to treat the poor differently than I would treat the privileged. You know, I'm not going to, to, to give them substandard care 
good enough for those people kind of thing. And so they began uh, getting together. And they, one of the things that happened, especially the guys of Mississippi, uh, they started a health clinic in this tiny little town called New Hebron, Mississippi, population 341 last year. Um, they started this little health clinic down there, and about three months in, they began to say, we're over our heads. Medicine, medical school did not prepare us for this. We're seeing, we've got cultural issues that we're facing that we're not prepared for. We've got complications that we're dealing with with people that we're not prepared for. And we're just not sure what to do. And so they started CCHF to be a platform for people that, with, that were thinking like this to gather and began to, you know, uh, talk to one another and share. And so this is what it, um, this is kind of what it, what it looks like sort of right now, you know, 30 years later. So we've got uh, somewhere around 300 organizations that consider themselves Christian clinics, Christian clinics being more than Christians ought to be providing health care, so we're doing health care, but Christian clinics being we're trying to do something that looks and smells like the kingdom of God. We're trying to we're, we're, we're questioning everything, and we're trying to bring all of our policies and procedures and everything in line with uh, what we think Christ might do and what resembles the kingdom of God. So there's uh, roughly 300 or so Christian clinics that are open full-time around the country. There's a whole lot more that are open maybe, you know, one day every two weeks or once a month. And did you have a question? Or no? Okay. Um, we really focus on the ones that, that where patients can go and find their doctor, okay? Of those 300, less than 100 of those have 10 employees. So most of those are really, really, really small in the face of this humongous need in our country. And approximately 60 of those are community health centers. That means that they take some federal funding. And this is a real shock for a lot of Christians, but... The one place that I know that the government is friendly to Christians is health care. You can be a Christian clinic and take federal money. I don't care whether you do or not, but I'm just telling you that you can share your, you can share the gospel, you can pray with patients, you can give them Bibles and tracts and everything else, and still be federally funded. And so there's a, quite a few of those around the country. And those are the larger health centers. Some of them see as many as 200,000 patient visits a year. The biggest need that we have, to be honest with you, is not for you to do a little short-term missions trip and spend two weeks or a, or a weekend, a month, working in a free clinic somewhere. The biggest need we have is for pioneers. We need people that are willing to not just float along in the brokenness of the current system that we have here in the United States. Um, this is a frightening thing to me, is that in every one of these cities, there is a massive need and almost no Christian witness in health care at all in terms of an organization that's, that's standing up and saying, hey, we're that one little dot in this huge broken system that is, that's trying to do something that looks like Jesus and is representing the kingdom of God. There's a community of people that have um, that have been out there and have been doing the work and are are willing to get behind people that are willing to to pioneer. There's people like Brian Hollinger and uh, 
Susan Post, Janelle Getches, Rick Donlin. Um, and these are people that are, and, and many, many others. And these are people that are that are willing to come alongside pioneers that are willing to go out and do something and start something in a place where their need is the greatest. I love Janelle Getches' story. She started out, uh, Janelle was a, uh, had just uh, done a residency in Muncie, Indiana. Her husband was a Methodist minister. Uh, they had decided to go to Pakistan, and they had visa problems back in the mid-70s. In the mid-70s, you didn't have Internet, so you had to, get in the, you had to like, go deal with it. And so they went to Washington, D.C. to try to work out their visas so they could get to Pakistan to be missionaries in Pakistan. And while they were there, they became aware of how many homeless people there were in D.C., and Janelle, you'd have to, you'd really have to appreciate this story if you if you could meet Janelle, because she's just the most unlikely person, in terms of, like she's very 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 quiet, very 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 humble, not a push forward type of person or anything, but she and her husband came back and went back to Muncie, and they said, hey, we're not going to go to Pakistan, we're going to move to D.C. and we're going to take care of the poor in, in Washington, in our nation's capital. And so they did, and she took a job at a, uh, in a hospital, worked in an ER, and uh, at the end of her shift, she and her husband would, you know, go in there, get in their station wagon, and they would go around to the bridges and the vacant apartment buildings that were in the, the area and find homeless people that they would, you know, who were too sick to be on the street, but not sick enough to be in the hospital, and she would take care of them. Sometimes she'd do it right there. Eventually, they turned their living room into an exam room, and they would bring homeless men back to their home and see them. They moved into an apartment building right in the middle of the area where the, where the homeless were so that the homeless could get to them. And so they, she did this. For years, she did this. Robert Wood Johnson, uh, which funds a lot of great stuff for health care, uh, awarded the city of, of D.C., a huge grant and said, we want you to do something for the health care for the homeless. We want you to do a health care for the homeless project. And D.C. looked around and said, we don't know anybody that's doing that except for this one ER nurse, I mean ER doc, um, who is doing something we're not sure about. And they approached Janelle. And so she started a little health clinic with that. Uh, and then she started putting clinics in the little homeless shelters. And when they first started, they, they would give her a janitor's closet as her entire clinic, and they would have to go in and literally, like, carry water. Sometimes they didn't have running water in those places. Carry water with them to wash it out in order to see the patients that they were going to see. And it just started that way for her. And she began to advocate for her patient population. And Janelle and her husband are both very strong, committed Christians, and they were praying with patients and all these kinds of things. But the, um, the breaking point for her came... When one night she was in the ER and a homeless man that she knew, it, uh, that she'd seen around a lot, came in. It was in the middle of winter. He was soaking wet, and he was sick. And so they got him some dry clothes. Uh, they fed him, and she treated him, and he, he was a borderline case. Like, maybe he could be admitted. And she tried to get him admitted to the hospital, but the hospital administration said, well, we, you know, we don't want to do that. It's going to cost us a lot of money to have this guy in here. And, uh, and we don't think he's sick enough. You know, we need him released. And she fought and fought and advocated for this guy. Um, but she got called away. 
uh, for some other things. And when she came back, the guy was gone. The hospital administrator had told the, um, the ER department to go ahead and discharge the guy. And the next morning, they found the guy frozen to death in a, in a bus stand in Washington. And she told her husband, she said, that's not going to happen again on my watch. And so they bought an apartment building, a small little crummy rundown apartment building, and they get raised enough money to um, to build out two floors of it, two small floors of it. Uh, one was just sort of an intake area, and the other other was um, they turned some of these little apartments into hospital rooms. It looks like a hospital. It's licensed as a boarding house, and. That became the first residential uh, treatment area for medical residential treatment area for homeless men in the country, and it's called Christ House. Uh, so the guys were that were too sick to be on the street, but not sick enough to be in the hospital, came to Christ House, and they got cared for, they got loved on, and they heard the gospel, and they got and they started get, turning their lives over to Christ. They either got on their meds or they got off their drugs, and they started trying to get their lives straight. They had no place to go at the end of it, and so um, they were going back out on the street, and that wasn't acceptable to Janelle. So she raised enough money to sort of fix the top two floors of this uh, four-story apartment building and turned it into a dormitory for these men to be sort of kind of a halfway house sort of thing. And, uh, And as she was doing that, she, uh, she was meditating on the scripture that said that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And she told her husband, she said, you know, we need to make sure that this is the kind of place that we would live. If we wouldn't live there, we shouldn't ask them to live there. And so they really fixed it up pretty nice. And then she decided the only way that we're going to ensure that it stays that way is if we move our family in there. And so Janelle and her husband and their three children moved into the dormitory in 1985 with these homeless men that were coming through this halfway program. And she lives there to this day with her husband. Her three kids are grown. Her daughter got married last year, and they did the wedding at Christ House. And Janelle, just taking like doing one step in front of the other, eventually is now responsible for the largest federally qualified health center in the United States. They saw over 600,000 patient visits last year. And um, it's called Unity Healthcare. It's not technically a Christian clinic because, frankly, they couldn't recruit enough Christians to work there. Um, and the need was so great. But Janelle is a, is a strong Christian who is you know, bringing Christian leadership into it, and, uh, and it's a nationwide, nationally known thing and a great model. Anyway, all I'm saying is this, is that, is that you've got decisions to make. It's important that you make them now, that you don't wait until you get to the crossroads or you're going to be in the wrong lane. And perhaps maybe the best way to make your decisions is not what do I like the best or where do I want to live or what pays the best, what do my parents want me to do? But maybe it's how can I be of greatest use to Christ in his kingdom? So I'm done. Any, we, don't, we don't have but a minute, but, you know, a couple of minutes. But does anybody have any questions that they want to ask?
Right. So um, we we know how to do successful health clinics. We've done so many unsuccessful successful ones over the years that we know what works. And, and I'm going to tell you, here's the three things that work. Number one is you should do it two by two. You shouldn't be a lone ranger. You need to be in team. All right? Number two is you've got to have a physician champion. That's a key. If you're, if you're going to be a nurse, that's awesome. Pray for God to give you a physician champion and the two of y'all team up and go start a clinic. But the physician has got to be the champion because in the world of medicine, if you've got MD or DO at the end of your name, you know the secret handshake. You can get into places and you can open doors for resources that, that other people can't do. And so it's really important. And a physician champion is not someone who thinks it's a good idea. A physician champion is someone who's willing to sell their home and downsize their life and live sacrificially in order to do something like this. That's what a physician champion looks like. And to do it for Jesus. And then the third thing that you have to have is you've got to have a mentoring relationship with a clinic and a group of people at that clinic that have the same values as you do, that are in it for the same reason, and that are maybe, you know, a few steps ahead of you. That you can pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, how are you guys screening patients for insurance? And what's your self-pay rate? And how are you all handling scheduling? And, you know, just things like that so that you can have that sort of back and forth. And so that is all available. Then in addition to that, well, I'm pretty excited about this, is that uh, Rick and uh, Rick Donlin and the guys at Christ Community Family Medicine uh, with a little bit of input from us, are, are putting together a curriculum, step-by-step curriculum for the next generation of pioneers to, you know, help put, you know, help get it started. It's going to deal with everything from negotiating contracts with insurance companies to a theology of the brokenness of healthcare in the United States. So, But that's not a reason. You don't wait for the, the, that to come out, even though you're going to benefit from it. Yeah. Um, I'm a nurse, which means I can't be the physician. Champion. Yeah, uh, do you know Joseph Horvath? Okay, so there's another group here from Cleveland who is really wanting to start something that really honors Christ in healthcare there. And I've been talking with them for four years. And um, this group showed up at our booth yesterday. And and I just asked them. I said I said so. What is, is there any movement? And, she's, and they said we finally have three or four doctors that have really come on and said they're totally in for this. And so they've been praying and preaching for three to four years. Like you, we've got to talk about it all the time. We've got to talk about just the like MD or DO at the end of your name. That's a that's a that's a gift. It's you really worked hard for that gift, but. But, but, but like, it's, it's a gift. It, it really is an amazing gift. I mean, there were a whole lot of things that happened that you did not have responsibility for. 
Like you were born in the right place. You, you know, you had opportunities that other people didn't have. God's opened that door for you. This is a stewardship. This isn't a, it's a precious resource. You could be a, a great community leader and go and sit in front of a city council meeting and they'll, you know, write you off with everybody else. But if you've got an MD at the end of your name, you're like a celebrity. Everybody listens to the doctor except for the patients. <laughs> says my doctor. <laughs> so I, I, I pray. Man, pray them into being. Like People ask me, where do you find the physician champion? And I tell them, they don't exist. They, you know, they're third-year residents. That's where they are. You know, but, but in terms of being out there, honestly, they don't exist. You have to preach them into existence. You have to call what is not as though it is. And you've, but not pretend that they're going to show up and it's going to be okay. That's like marrying the guy that's going to one day be a great husband. But like you've 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 got to really like you've got to get out there and preach and just say, hey, we've got to address this brokenness. We're not just cogs in this massive institution that's fallen. We need to say it. It's fallen, and we need to love it. You know, but we need and we need to say this, and we're fallen too. We get that. We're broken. But we're looking to Christ and recognizing that our brokenness has got to be fixed and it's going to be through reconciling with Christ and his kingdom. And the gospel's big enough for that. Like Jesus' death and his blood was enough for your sin, but it says it was, it was super abundant for that. And I believe that Christ's death was not only sufficient for our sin, but for the results of it as well. And our broken families, our broken nations, our broken government, our broken education system, our broken health care system, I believe can be redeemed in the kingdom of God. But it's got to be the gospel of the kingdom that we're preaching and calling people to be ambassadors of this imminent kingdom that we're a part of. This, it, it, like the kingdom of God is not a possibility. It's an inevitability. It's one of those decrees from God. It's not, a, it's not, if you'll do this and this and this, maybe I'll come through. It's like the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. And there's people in every generation that are willing to swim against the stream and be ambassadors of that kingdom and stand up in love and humility and say, yeah, this isn't right. You know, we shouldn't feel good about what we're doing here. This is, we, we've, got to, we've got to care for the poor. I think God wants the church to care for the poor, the sick, the broken. But I think God cares for the poor, the sick, the broken, and he's going to see it. He'll use a crooked stick if it's the straightest one around, you know. So I'm not sure that the church is any straighter than the government, to be honest with you. But but God's going to see them taken care of. So we shouldn't. I'm, I'm with you. We shouldn't complain about it. All right. Y'all go to the next thing. It's going to take you 20 minutes to get there anyway. <laughs> Follow them. They seem to know where they're going. Thank you for coming to this.